People are strange when you're a stranger. Faces look ugly when you're alone. Women seem wicked when you're unwanted. Streets are uneven when you're down. When you're strange, faces come out of the rain. When you're strange, no one. Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, we'll be beginning the, uh, our look at Edgar Huntley, which will be the third and final of the novels of Charles Brockton Brown that I'll, that I'll review and, and, and try to analyze in this, in this series. So I'm pretty close to saying goodbye to, to Char- Charlie Brown. He's a really odd cat, I have to say, and, and Edgar Huntley is it's like a shocking novel, I have to say. It... And it has so many weird things going on there. It, it, the subtitle is Memoirs of a Sleepwalker, right? But you learn pretty quickly in the novel, at least about halfway through, that it's not just one sleepwalker, there's two sleepwalkers. And the novel then devolves in the second half into like a bloodbath, like almost like a Rambo type of story where Edgar Huntley, who we're led to believe is kind of a mild-mannered you know, Quaker uh, living in the early American frontier, and in the second half, he just goes nuts on the local Indians and starts slaughtering them. And um, so a novel that seems to be about this kind of supernatural uh, element of sleepwalking. It's kind of like Wieland in that way, where you take this thing that's, I guess, naturally occurring. And Wieland, it was mental illness and uh, the ability to throw one's voice, ventriloquism. In this one, it's sleepwalking. But that doesn't even really matter in the second half, except for explaining certain events. What really matters in the second half is this really brutal violence between the, the Indians of the Lene Lepi, I think that's how it's pronounced, uh, and this, this young Quaker man who, you know, it's, it's pretty shocking, actually, to read. And, and in fact, uh, Charles Brown kind of acknowledges this, this context early on in the story. Uh, actually, in the, in the preface, he says, Quote, one merit the writer may at least claim, that of calling forth the passions and engaging the sympathies of the reader by means hitherto unemployed by preceding authors. Puerile superstition and exploded manners, gothic castles and chimeras, are the materials usually employed for this end. The incidents of Indian brutality or Indian hostility in the perils of the western wilderness are for more suitable and for the native Americans to overlook these, would admit of no apology. These, therefore, are in part are the ingredients of the tale. And these he has been ambitious in depicting in vivid, vivid and faithful colors, end quote. So he acknowledges right away that any American Gothic novel is going to have to deal with this fundamental fear of America, which is the frontier, the wilderness, kind of the borderline between civilization and, and barbarism. And that really, you know, reaches its peak in Indian violence. Now, just some of the historical context of of Brown writing. He's writing after the American Revolution, right? And as most of you probably know, the Native Americans supported the British. Most Native Americans supported the British during the, the war. I think one or two, like one Iroquois, I think it's the Oneida, maybe backed the Americans. But mostly the Indians supported the British because the British, of course, issued the proclamation line and, and made these promises that settlement would not go beyond the Appalachian Mountains. And that's what they wanted. The Americans made no such promise. And as the aftermath of the war shows, the victory of the Americans just opened up this huge empire uh, for conquest. And, and if you want to read that history, I urge you to pick up The Death and Rebirth of the Seneca, which is a bit old, 
and it probably is dated in a lot of ways, but it's one of the best books about a defeated people coming to terms with their defeat. And it's all, it's all about the Iroquois, most particularly the Seneca, but more the Iroquois more broadly, we learn just about the consequences of defeat. And in fact, they didn't even fully lose, right? The, the Indians won most of their battles against the Americans, but they were on the losing side at the end of the day. And when the British handed over the colonies, they handed over everything to the Mississippi, which, which gave the United States instantly an empire, which is why I think I've said before in this podcast, the United States from day one, you know, from the signing of the Treaty of Paris was an empire, right? And would continue to be to this to this day. Um, now, this, if you if you just skip over the the little introduction he gives here, you don't think we're having a, we're going to have a novel about you know a, a Rambo type character going nuts on on Indians in, in a frontier area. We think we're going to just have a kind of another Gothic novel where weird things happen and there's odd people and. And kind of a mystery about what happened um, going on. In fact, that's what we're told very much in the first chapter. Uh, and that's the setup we get is that Edgar Huntley, now he's writing this, this letter, the whole novel, except for the letters, there's a few letters in the end of the novel, but you know, the bulk of it, 99% of the novel is letters, uh, one big long letter actually by Edgar Huntley to his fiancee. And he's basically trying to explain what happened, this strange event that, that he experienced over this number of days. And he sets it up in the first chapter. No one writes letters with chapters, I suppose, but um, you know, it's, it's still a novel, uh, pretending to be a letter. And he, he tarts out, starts out by talking about how he's been kind of, he's been given this mystery. This mystery is, is essentially who has killed his friend, Waldengrave, which is a, kind of a, a good name for someone who just died. Um, and he has, this, he has this deep urgency to explain this tale. It's like weighing on his shoulders. And at various times in the story, he talks about how fearful he is of, of continuing the story because it is pretty brutal and, and, and vicious um, throughout and, and terrifying, actually. The imagery of the wilderness, the emptiness, the, the isolation, the, the natural threats, the, the rough terrain, and then, of course, the Indians who you know, could, can kill you at a moment's notice, at least in, in this world that we're presented here. Um, we'll have to deal with the politics of how the Indians are presented here. I don't think he's merely presenting the Indians in a negative light, you know, like the, the violent, the, the savage uh, barbar barbarism motif of American Indians. That, of course, exists in literature, but um, kind of the, the opposite side of the noble savage, right? The violent savage. But the Quakers aren't presented much better here. I mean, Edgar Huntley is shown as basically going nuts, completely off his you know, rocker for much of the, the story. Um, you know, just capable. Of, he, it's like he's not even, he didn't even know he was capable of this violence. That's why I think this would make a really interesting film, actually. I don't know if it would be politically correct these days to present it the way it's, it's written, but this kind of story is something that's attractive in, in film. Like the mild-mannered person who, put in this situation, you know, finds his brutal uh, nature. Um, but anyways, this is all burdened on him, and he's trying to uh, explain this to his fiancée. I mean, where, why is all this blood on his hands, I guess, is the, the root cause. And so the, the opening kind of plot is that his friend Waldengrave has been murdered. And, and people showing up dead is a pretty common theme in this, this novel. Um, and he just wants to find out who, who killed him, right? Quote, the, insta ins the insanity of vengeance and grief into which I was hurried, my fruitless searches for the author of this guilt, my midnight wanderings and reveries beneath the shade of the fateful elm were revived and reacted. 
I heard a discharge of the pistol, and I witnessed the alarm of Inglefield. I heard his calls to the servants, and I saw them issue forth with lights to hasten to the spot where the sound had seemed to proceed. So this elm tree is where this murder took place and where they found this, this body. And so in the early part of the novel, is going to constantly go back to this elm tree. And this elm tree is going to be, I don't know if it has a sim, it's symbolism, but it's a, a totem of the early part of the novel that Edgar Huntley is continuing to go to. But we see already he admits his insanity over his, his drive to find out who killed this friend of his. And he actually wants to punish the crime. He convinces himself early on, despite being a Quaker and despite supposedly having a belief in nonviolence, you know, he says, you know, we have to you know, have vengeance for this, this brutal murder. He talks about this tree later on in the early pages. The tree which has formerly been shunned by the criminal might, in the absence of the avatar, the avenger of blood, be incautiously approached. Thoughtless or, f- or fearless on my return, it was possible that he might at this moment be detected hovering near the scene of his offenses. So he actually has this idea that the murderer is still waiting there in the, in the trees, ready to pounce on him. So we got a pretty um, fearful opening to this, this novel. And then right away, we're given this really strange encounter where he walks past someone and that person just just ignores him and, and, and continues walking like he doesn't see him there. We're going to find out later on that this man is sleepwalking, but it's a very strange encounter when it's first uh, given to us and described to us. It's just like, a, you know, knowing you like someone walk by, you say hi to them and they just keep walking and they kind of snub you. Uh, that's weird enough in most in most cases, but you know, in the modern city, I guess it's a little bit different. But in these days, right, you, you greet the people you walk by, but this guy just continues walking past. Now, not only is this man just walking past him, he sort of follows him, sees the man, follows him, and sees him start digging this grave near the elm tree. So instantly, of course, Edgar Huntley is going to think that this is the man that killed his his friend. The suspicion is just. Uh, too high. But at the end of the chapter, he realizes that there's something really off about this guy, and he starts to think that maybe he's he's actually sleeping and sleepwalking. Nevertheless, there's a lot of suspicion just based on the situation that they're in. You know, the circumstantial evidence here is just too high. So he begins to suspect this man, and in chapter two, he comes to the conclusion that this man must have something to do with the murder of, of Waldengrave. And then he is ask, able to ask around and figures out that it's a local servant named Clithero. And then we learn a little bit about the local settlements here in this kind of frontier community. Quote, there was nothing in the first view of the character calculated to engender suspicion. The neighborhood was populous, but I have conned over the catalog. I perceived that the only foreigner among us was Clithero. Our scheme was, for the most part, a patriarchal one. Each farm was surrounded by his sons and kinsmen. This was an exception to the rule. Clothero was a stranger whose adventures and character previously to his coming hither were unknown to us. The elm was surrounded by his master's domains. An actor there must be, and no one was equally questionable, end quote. So he gets his, he's believed to be the murderer simply because he's a foreigner and he's the most suspicious. Um, the, the discussion of, of how this is a kind of close-knit family network, you know, the patriarchal uh, aspect of the settlement, right? These are mostly family farms, right? So there's not that many servants here in these Quaker communities. It's not like Virginia, where you have uh, a lot of indentured servants, or maybe in the cities. It's, it's very much a family farm affair. So anyone who doesn't fit in is, is known immediately. So Huntley commits to questioning about Clothero, digging around, trying to find what evidence he can. And he eventually decides to confront him. So he goes back to the spot of the elm, sees the man there, and Huntley is terrified at this, because again, the same man is there digging a grave at the same port he was last time. 
Um, so he spies out the area and he, he kind of goes to this cave. This cave is going to major, be a major role in the much, much of the remainder of the novel. There's like the wilderness, the forest, the hills, and this cave. Uh, the whole network of caves, actually, in, in this neighborhood. He enters the cave and he doesn't confront Clothero at this moment. But later on, he decides to follow him. And another day, again, sees him at the same spot, this elm tree spot. He identifies this man as Clothero. And so now he's got his proof, right? You, you've been back to the spot where the murder took place many times. You've been digging graves. You're suspicious. You're weird. You're a foreigner. So everything has convinced Edgar Huntley that Clothero is, is the murderer. So he decides now is the time to confront this, this man. I think he still snoops around for a while, though, before finally confronting Clothero. And... And he learns that Clothero's been kind of acting a bit strange, and other people seem to think he's got strange behavior, and other people report that he does actually seem to, to sleepwalk. And, and this has been known by some of the people in the, in the community. So he finally then does confront Clothero and takes him to the spot out by the elm tree. And, and we're actually told at this point by the narrative that that he's not the murderer and Edgar Huntley seems to say I'd actually like stand up for this guy because he's telling this in the aftermath of, of, of knowing the tale but that's a bit weird because we know at the very end of the story that Clithero does have some kind of nefarious aspect maybe it's mostly a mental illness I suppose but um, he says he's going to confess and Huntley's like okay let's do this you know he's convinced of his guilt and then he says, Sunday I'll come and I'll tell you my creepy crimes. I'll tell you all my crimes. And so what we get following this is, is five chapters, chapters four through eight, which take up like a whole, a big chunk of the story, something like, like a quarter of the whole novel. It's Clithero's backstory, which he tells to him. And he's going to like confess his crimes and nothing has to do with this Walden grave. He doesn't even know who this Walden grave is. He's completely baffled by this. But he's, he seems to have all these other crimes that he wants to confess. And so he begins to tell his story, beginning in chapter 4. And, and this is just a fascinating uh, side tale, it seems to me. I, I love this, this section of Clothero's story. So let's, let's talk about Clothero's story, because this was a big part of this, this novel. He starts out by talking about his, his overall misery. And I think this is kind of a common trope in, in Brown's fiction where he'll introduce a character and that character will then talk about, you know, how miserable his life has been. Quote, my misery has been greater than that has fallen to the lot of mortals. Yet it is, yet it is but beginning. My present path, full as it is of asperities, is better than that into which I must enter when it's abandoned. Perhaps if my pilgrimage had been longer... I might at some future day have lightened upon hope. In consequence of your interference, I am forever debarred from it. My existence is henceforth to be invariable. So he seems to have some kind of mission, some kind of quest, but it's a very dark future he's looking forward to uh, entering. He also, though, in this introduction, talks about himself as being controlled by a demon. So we're immediately supposed to be thinking about um, that some mental thinking, that some mental illness has been plaguing Clithero. And then he goes into his background. He was Irish-born. When he became an adult, he entered into, into kind of an indentured servitude kind of relationship, and he started to travel around. And eventually he became part of a household that kind of welcomed him and, and, and was very good to him, and, and where most of the story is going to take place within this family. It's really it's headed by this woman named Mrs. Lorimer. 
And through his exposure to Mrs. Lorimer's household, he's able to live a moral life as a youth, not really exposed to temptation. So he's able to kind of ride through the what's called here is the feverish period of youth without too much, um, too many negative influences. So it's a very good uh, situation he's in. We're then introduced to the character that's going to kind of throw this up in the air. And this is Laura Mir's twin brother, Arthur Wayatt, he's called. And he's presented as greedy and avarice. He reminds me a little bit of, of maybe um, well back from Arthur Mervyn. He's the opposite of his sisters in goals. Um, and he actually opposes his sister's hopes and dreams. She wants to, for instance, marry. And he even breaks this marriage and then proceeds to get revenge on the suitor of the man. Nevertheless, despite all his greed and his uh, negative characteristics and his kind of almost abusive behavior towards Mrs. Lorimer, he seems to have her respect and her, her, her love. And she's actually willing to like stand up for him. So it's a really bad guy, but he's got an interesting background. He's eventually turns into a highwayman. Uh, he, well, he becomes a gambler first, loses all his money as a gambler. And that, this is after the parents die, the Lorimer's parents die. He becomes a gambler. He's eventually turned into a highwayman, then caught and sent to America. He's, he's like, he was like, I guess, going to be executed. But then often what they would do is they would reduce the, the penalty to transportation for maybe like seven years. So you had to go live in America for seven years. Mostly those people stayed in America. Sometimes they could return after a number of years. So that's where he gets sent to. And so this is a, a kind of a big part of Atlantic history. If any of you have studied that Atlantic history and know anything about it, you know, a lot of, it's not that the United States was populated by criminals, but many of the people who did cross over the Atlantic were people who had their sentence commuted to, to transportation. But uh, just a wonderful kind of story of, of crime. I think Brown is interested in this kind of Atlantic nature of crime. It, it comes up a lot in, I mean, of course, um, in Whelan, um, Kerwin, Carwin, you know, is kind of this transatlantic criminal type, suspicious type. Arthur Mervyn, you have it more tied into the growing economy and the fluidity of money and the way people could exploit that. And here you have a straight up highwayman and burglar who is going to be executed and then, but then rather sent to sent to America. And then he kind of disappears from the story for a while. Uh, he's still an important character in the backdrop, though. They get news that he kind of dies in a mutiny on the ship on the way to going to America. But he left behind a daughter. He fathered an orphan, a, a girl named Clarice, and then she's raised then by this Mrs. Lorimer as part of the family. So over time, Clothero falls in love with Clarice and decides he must go. This is the same thing Arthur Mervyn did when he fell in love with that young girl on the farm, you know, suddenly facing the prospect of love, you know, can't really handle it, can't close a deal and, ha and has to leave. Um, Lorimer can't understand why he wants to depart. And it's all kind of mysterious. But then she has Clarice intervene. And actually, she offers Clarice to him in his marriage as a way of getting Clothero to stay in, in England. And then his response to this is a bunch of pathos. Quote, great God, deliver me from the torments of this remembrance that have been by whom I was snatched from punery and brutal ignorance and exalted to some rank in the intelligent creation, reared to affluence and honor, and thus at last spontaneously endowed with all that remained to complete the sum of my felicity, 
that a being like this, but such thought must not yet be. I must shut them out, or I shall never arrive at the end of my tale. My efforts had thus far been successful. I have hitherto been able to deliver a coherent narrative. Let the last words that I shall speak afford some glimmering of my better days. Let me execute without faltering the only task that remains for me. So this is kind of the peak of his life. He's actually achieved his his happiness. But but what happens? Of course, it, it has to be broken up by, by some horrific event. Um, Clothero has foreshadowed that this is the story is telling is one of a horrible one not one of not one that has a happy ending certainly so Clothero decides to stay obviously but faint intervenes Clarice goes to see a friend in the city who's sick and so she kind of leaves leaves the story for a while um, so while she's gone they run into this man I don't think he's named here but it must be Sarsfield Sarsfield is someone who's going to be the connection between both Edgar and Clothero. Because he's like Miss Lorimer's like lover. And he went off into the join the East India Company. So we get this wonderful tale of the East India Company and all his adventures in the East. It's on page 690 and 691 of the Library of America version. And it's, this is, it's all in chapter 6. Great stuff. Really amazing story. I'm not going to go through it point by point, but I urge you to check it out. There's a lot of, of kind of global analysis that can be done of in this tale, especially surrounding characters like um, that Arthur Waite, um, the Sarsfeld, and, and a few others. You know, that there's, you know, it kind of, it stretches from the East all the way to the American frontier. So it's a wonderful little tale in that way, and just in a kind of this global perspective. And I think um, it'd be worth looking at a little bit. Uh, from this from this international perspective, kind of the global context of early American frontier history, I guess. <clears throat> I just presume there must have been a lot of these types of folks who, you know, America early on was connected to the sea, right? Connect, you know, by boats, and so there must have been a lot of people together. Maybe it's because I've been thinking about Melville so much lately. In fact, that'll be the next series. We'll go back to Melville and finish up his works. But whatever, it's it's. You know, early American history is not continental, even though there is a frontier. It's really Atlantic and, and beyond the Atlantic. So he goes to the town then to visit Clarice, but he later returns without her because she's still like going to hang out with her, her sick friend. And then he finds Arthur Waite alive and well. He wasn't killed in the mutiny. He's back in England. And actually, this is nine years later. So after Waite was originally ejected from England and sent to America. So he's actually legally in, in Britain. He's not doing anything illegal there uh, because he served his sentence for transportation. Now, we don't really know where he's been. There's probably a good chance he was all over the place. But still, he's still he's, he's a bit suspicious. Um, and so he's he meets up with then Sarsfield, Sarsfield, I think it's pronounced, Sarsfield, this, this old lover of, of his mistress. And they decide to kind of check up and follow on Arthur Waite. And really, where the burden of, uh, uh, on Edgar Hunt, no, sorry, on Clothero is, the burden of Clothero is that this is the father of, of, of Clarice, the woman he, he loves. Quote, that Sarsenfield should be so quickly followed by his arch foe that they started anew into existence without any previous intimidation, in a manner wholly unexpected. And at the same period, it seemed as if there lurked under these appearances a tremendous significance which human sagacity could not uncover. My heart sunk within me when I reflected that this was the father of my Clarice. 
He, by whose cruelty his, her mother was torn from the enjoyments of untarnished honor and consigned into infamy and an untimely grave. He, by whom herself was abandoned in the hopeless, helplessness of infancy and left to the prey of obdurate avarice and the victim of wretches who traffic in virgin innocence." End quote. So this is a common theme in Brown's writings. It's not so much in Whelan, but it's a lot in Arthur Mervyn. It's just the, the, the seducer, the ravager of young women. And those women always seem to die or get really ill, right? Whether it's um, the Clemenza Lodi or uh, Edgar Huntley's sister was raped and ravaged and, and abandoned. A lot of characters kind of have that fate. Um, I, I don't know. I think Brown has a really hard time imagining these women reintegrated into society after being raped or seduced. And so they kind of just have to die. That's the only way they can kind of stay in the... They, there's really no future for them in this, in this society. So Sarsfield and, and Edgar want to protect Lorimer, Miss Lorimer, from Arthur, and especially her property, because there's a concern that maybe he's going to try to like, take her property away from her, use his status as the, as the male brother to lay claim to her property. Um, and then on the streets, he is shot by a man. And he's, so he's just walking around one day and he gets shot by a man. It grazes his forehead. It almost kills him. He almost gets shot in the head. And they, he starts to fight with this man and he ends up shooting this man with his own pistol. Uh, Clothero has his own pistol. And it turns out it's Arthur Waite who he's killed. And he's dying. He tries to get a surgeon to help, but he's not able to. And he dies. This is going to be something that's paralleled later in the story about the surgeon who you know, doesn't want to help the injured man and he ends up helping him. So it's kind of the inverse of this. Here, the surgeon just simply cannot help and Arthur Waite dies. And this is the point in the story where Clothero kind of falls off the wagon. He kind of starts to get crazy. He, he has this mixed feelings about killing Waite. He certainly feels bad about it. He, he feels some guilt, but at the same time, he, he realizes he didn't really, he was just defending himself. Um, but he's, he's feels, he has a deeper fear and that is that he thinks Arthur Waite and his mistress this is Lorimer of some kind of almost psychic connection that's going to bind them together. And so he thinks that his death may actually cause the death of, of Mrs. Lorimer. So he goes then back to the house and he goes to the bedchamber of Mrs. Lorimer and he sees her sleeping. And this is uh, very much similar to the scene in Wheeland where you have a mistaken identity because someone's sleeping in the wrong bed. Um, he goes there, he kind of, he's, and he kind of falls into a type of insanity. He holds a dagger. And he's about to kill the person in the bed because he, for some reason, he thinks she cannot live without Arthur Waite. But, I mean, he's completely out of his mind at this point. He's, he's gone completely nuts. But this is going to be his mission for the rest of his life is to somehow kill Mrs. Lorimer, this woman who cared for him and was good to him. Um, completely irrational. Um, but he finds Clarice in the bed and... Now, Mrs. Lormier shows up and she's able to stop him from killing Clarice. And then he explains that I've come to murder you to do what I did to your brother. Mrs. Lormier hears the news and she just passes out. And then Clothero flees. Um, and he has nowhere to go. I mean, he certainly can't stay there. So he flees and goes to America. And then he ends his story. So this was chapters four through eight that covers the story. Five whole chapters doing all of Clothero's background. And then Edgar, now we're back to the... The main story and Edgar hears all this and he immediately kind of declares Clithero innocent of all his acts and he says like you weren't wrong in what you did right now Edgar knows Sar Sarsfield who came to become a teacher 
And actually, he's Edgar's teacher, so he sees this connection. This is another thing that Brown loves to do, is to have these, these connections between characters. I don't know if this is just because early America was such a small world compared to, you know, we don't have these same kind of coincidences as much anymore. Maybe because we're in a, there are so many people now and we live in these huge cities. But in these smaller worlds, you know, it's more likely that people cross paths. You know, that six degrees of separation is, is maybe not as much in a, in, a, in a small world like early America. Or maybe it's just... Uh, Brown trying to develop these connections for for drama, but he's Edgar's teacher. Now, after telling the story and after kind of getting a f forgiveness from Edgar, Clothero leaves and he leaves for several days. Uh, Edgar fears that Clothero is going to kill himself, and he, so he's trying to chase down Clothero, find out where he's been. So he spends a lot of the following chapters going out in the woods looking for Clothero and exploring the areas, and we get this these wonderful depictions, and it's gonna, really for the rest of the novel, we're gonna get these again and again, these huge panoramic descriptions of, of this kind of unexplored, untouched wilderness. Of course, we learn that they're populated by Indians, but nevertheless, we get these, these types of imagery of, of the wilderness. Eventually, he finds the cave, though, and he enters the cave, he goes into the mouth of the cave without a light which I don't understand why he doesn't go back for his life, but he, he thinks he's going to find Clothero. So he goes into the cave without this light. And in chapter 10, we get these same kind of vivid and interesting descriptions of the, the cave. He's trying to feel his way around the cave without light, right? Navigating by hand, essentially, through this cave, which seems really, really dangerous. And this, this cave is not safe at all, as we learn. But he gets through it, and he starts to see a light, and he kind of can get to this secret place, which is a mountain overlook on the other end of the the cave and we get more descriptions of the beauty of this of this wilderness now obviously I, I think the word wilderness is improper here from kind of an environmental historical perspective this land was of course shaped by human hands but that's not how Americans at the time saw it. they tended to see this as wilderness they sent it to the Indians as part of that wilderness not not a straight-up civilization so Brown is gonna obviously gonna be drawn into that prejudice and that's just one of the things we have to face when, when reading a novel like this. Um, and then the, this focus on the loneliness, the emptiness of this land is palpable. Quote, a sort of sanctity and awe envisioned it, owing to the consciousness of absolute and utter loneliness. It was probable that human feet had never before gazed these recess, gained this recess, that human eyes had never been fixed upon these gushing waters, that aboriginal inhabitants had no motive to lead them into caves like this and ponder on that verge with such a precipice. Their successors were less likely to have wandered hither. Since the birth of this continent, I was probably the first who had deviated thus remotely from the customary paths of men." End quote. Now, obviously, it, it seems he's excluding Indians from humanity in this, this description. Now, he finally finds Clithero there. He's kind of retreated to another cave below this mountain recess, but he can't get to it. The only way he can get to it is by cutting down a tree. And kind of using it as a bridge but he doesn't have the tools so he has to go all the way back home grabs these tools and and comes back to cut down this tree for a bridge he fears that clothero is, is starving to death so that's why he wants to go home so at the end of chapter 10 we see edgar huntley returning home to to get these tools so he goes home he prepares an axe and some food and then he goes back to the cave and he fells this tree He's preparing to chase Clothero into the cave. And eventually does find Clothero sleeping. He gives him some food and leaves. He doesn't wake him up for some reason, but gives him these food and leaves. And this is 
you know, going to be a, la a later plot point that Clithero is going to think he's somewhat touched by heaven or he's got some kind of weird mystical benefactor who's trying to save his life. Edgar seems to want him to be forgiven for Arthur's death, and that's that's a big reason he's so interested in Clithero. And on the way back, though, he finds where Clithero was digging, and the dirt was filled in again. So he's back at the elm tree, and the dirt was filled in again, and he wonders who did this. Um, he goes back home, finally, and he's shown a box made by Clithero. And it's really some beautiful, ingenious engineering. It's like a, a track box, almost, like it's, a, it's got its own special handmade device. And he thinks it's kind of a lock, and there's something secret in there that will help Clithero with his guilt and his, his, his feelings of anxiety over what he did. And so he wants to open this box to help Clithero out. And he unlocks the box, which is a trap, actually. It's, it's, it's basically it breaks when it's tampered with. And the point of this is not to actually hide something, but rather to alert the maker of the device if someone is snooping around their their stuff. Uh, Arthur, not Arthur, Edgar, <laughs> Edgar Huntley knows that Clithero will be pissed off about this. So he, but he, but he goes away and he goes back to the elm tree to dig and he digs up this, this grave. And he, you know, that thing that, that uh, Clithero has been digging and he finds a manuscript. And so while he's doing this, so he sees Clithero finally return from the cave and go back to the house. He looks at the manuscript. The manuscript is by Mrs. Lorimer. And what it is, it's a very, very long defense of Arthur, which is a bit shocking to us at the time because we don't understand why she was so affected by the death of her brother because everything we learned about Arthur Wade is that he was a, a villain and a, a quite scandalous villain. But uh, it, according to this manuscript, it seems that there's this, she really loves him and thinks he was a good guy and misunderstood and all that. So the next day, he goes back to the mountain. I guess he's still trying to find out wherever Clithero is hiding out, because even though he went back to the house, he didn't stay. I think he found the, the broken remnants of his box and figured out someone's snooping around. So he, he went back there, and then Edgar goes back to try to find him again. And we, again, we get the description of this treacherous trip. Now there's storms added to this, and also panthers. So... Um, actually, we get a nice little snip, snapshot of, of the ecology of the region here uh, and how humans have begun to affect this. Again, it's the white people that seem to have the effect on the environment, not Indians. Quote, the industry of our hunters had nearly banished animals of prey from these precedents. He's talking about the panther. The fastness of Nor Norwalk, however, could not but afford refuge to some of them. Of late, I had met them so rarely that my fears were seldom alive. And I trod without caution the ruggedness and most solitary haunts. Still, however, I had seldom been unfurnished in my rambles with a means of defense. So there is this kind of threat of cats of prey. And so he carries the tomahawk. That's going to be important that he does this. But it seems that they've been largely driven from um, existence. Uh, we've seen this actually all the way back to uh, James Fenimore Cooper's novel. I think it's in The Pioneers where... We see the pioneer communities setting bounties on these kinds of uh, wild cats. Uh, so there's kind of a, this um, ecocide going on among them. But this is one of the surviving panthers that he runs into. And he eventually has to kill it. So he, I think it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of a chase scene where he, he's trying to get back to the cave and he has to use his tomahawk to kind of kill the, kill the panther. 
maybe he wounds the panther and later on the panther jumps chases him and jumps into the cavern but uh he's able to kill his panther and this is the first act of violence that edgar huntley engages with maybe in his whole life right he's going to do a lot more and he's going to it's going to go up and up but his first act of violence is against this this animal so after this things start to slow down he you know edgar goes back to his house it's kind of a transitional point in the novel he goes back to his house and he starts to think again of Waldengrave. He still has, um, he still has, you know, this mystery about who killed him. But he also thinks now it's time to move on. And he thinks what he can do for Waldengrave is maybe publish his manuscript on religion. He's written this, this um, manuscript that he, that he would have wanted to see published. And so Waldengrave, we get his intellectual history here. It's kind of a side discussion about the development of his ideas. It seems he's kind of a religious mystic essentially, and maybe kind of an American-style religious mystic, seeing God in, in nature and all that. But he goes to look for Walden Graves papers, and they're gone. And why or who would someone want to steal these? He doesn't have any idea. Why would anyone want these crazy ramblings about religion? So then Edgar's uncle, because Edgar's father's dead. He died a long time ago, but Edgar's uncle is there. He's Mr. Huntley in the story. He comes and he starts to ask about someone who's been walking around upstairs. Who made this noise upstairs? And Edgar says, well, it wasn't me. And we're going to learn later on that Edgar also sleepwalks. It's not just Clefairo who, who sleepwalks, which is a, a big surprise when you first read the, the story. Um, in the chapter 14, which is the last chapter I'll look at today, you know, what we have here actually, you know, I'm going to talk about here, is the first mystery that Brown doesn't like make a point of trying to fully solve by the end of the novel, because I don't think there's any answer to no, or at least no resolution to this plot line. You know, I've, I was really bothered by that in Arthur Mervyn, how he seemed to have to like tie every single plot line into a nice bow. He even did that in Whelan a little bit. But anyways, a man named Weymouth comes in asking for money that he says he entrusted to Waldengrave. He says, you know, Waldengrave was watching this money for me. And there's no will, though. There's no will that says, you know, I have been keeping for safekeeping this money for a guy named Weymouth. So there's no proof. There's no will, there's no proof that this money was there. And the property is all confused um, since Waldengrave's death. They haven't gone like, fully through probate. And this, but this is someone claiming to have need of this money, but there's, there's no connection. He can't prove that the money is his. Way, Waymouth explains the origins of the money, and this is also tied into Atlantic history in interesting ways. Um, trade with Madeira and things like that. Um, I guess wine trade with Madeira and involving bills of exchange. It's, it's kind of reminiscent of some of the stuff we saw in, in Arthur Mervyn, but how this kind of the consequences in America for these, uh, for people's investment in these kind of Atlantic commerce. So he needs the money, he says, really to, to help his family. And he knows that, that Huntley is running the Waldergate estate, so he's kind of pushing for this return of money. But he also knows that he really can't demand it because there's no proof. So he's kind of a beggar at this point. And I think that's where I'll leave off. That's halfway through the story. It's actually more than 100 pages. It's about 130 or so. Uh, it's a little bit. This novel is a little bit more than 200, but not quite 300. So uh, I'll just do this one in two episodes. So that's it. A lot of interesting stuff here. It's a really bizarre novel. And in the second half, it's going to get even weirder when basically Edgar Huntley becomes a kind of a Rambo character out in the woods slaughtering these, these Indians pretty mercilessly. And, and we just see how bad things really are in the frontier. There's really kind of a almost a, a ongoing 
asymmetrical conflict going on between the Indians and the Quaker settlers. And I, I think that's partially really what Brown wants to talk about here is the just the violence of the American frontier and, and how that spills over into these settlements. So I'll get to that next time. But if you have any thoughts about the first half of Arthur, or sorry, not Arthur, I'm talking about Arthur Mervyn so much, uh, if the first part of, of Edgar Huntley, let me know. What do you think of the sleepwalking stuff? What do you think of the mystery of it all? What do you think of uh, Clitheroe's backstory and his madness? Um, if you have any comments on any of that stuff, please leave it below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. And in the next episode, I'll finish up my thoughts on Charles Brockton Brown, specifically by, by finishing up Edgar Huntley. So thanks as always for listening. See you next time. Faces come out of the rain when you stray. No one remembers your name when you're strange, when you're strange, when you're strange.